0: Amen. All right, well, let's uh, review quickly. So we were in Haggai chapter 1 last week, and as I mentioned last week, Haggai is divided up pretty neatly into four messages or four oracles that God gives to his people through his prophet Haggai, and they're divided pretty nicely in their specific dates. We mentioned that last week, how it's a very accurately dated book, and the dates kind of bracket each oracle or each message. So last week, we talked about chapter 1, which is really just one of the four. And today, we'll look at chapter 2, which is the remaining three. And if we were going to summarize last week's, it's really this admonition from the Lord to get building. He's telling his people to get building. Now, what were the circumstances around that? Let's flesh that out a little bit just to remind us where we're at. Why would he tell them to get building? And get building what? Anyone remember? The temple, okay? So why did they need the encouragement to get building? Like, what had happened? The exile they had been carried off into Babylon, come back. What else? What else do you remember from Haggai chapter 1? Yeah, yeah, they were focused on building their own houses and not the house of the Lord, a pretty neat neat little parallel there that the prophet uses. Okay, and they were really living... um, relatively comfortably compared to the unusability of God's house. And God rebukes them for that and says, where are your priorities? And because they had prioritized their own comfort over the Lord's worship, really, which is what the temple was, uh, what were some of the consequences for God's people? Remember? Drought. Drought. Yeah, excellent. So there's almost like futility, like an increased futility. The land wasn't co- cooperating. The environment wasn't cooperating. Nothing was really working for them. And God's saying, yeah, no kidding. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Why on earth would it be that nothing's going well for you? A- and why could God say that to these people? He could say, you should know better. Consider your ways. Why could he say that to them? Sure, certainly there seems to be this cycle that unfortunately is quite relatable, right? Where God brings them back to himself and then they, they're good for a while. They walk with the Lord and then they start slipping and come back to this rebellion and on and on it goes. But why could God say, you should know what would happen if you disobeyed me? Because he told them in his law, right? In the Mosaic Covenant, he said very specifically, if you disobey, there's going to be pestilence, there's going to be famine, and there's going to be exile eventually if you don't repent and turn back to me. And guess what happened? Exactly those things. And so God can say, uh, hello, we've talked about this. You should know better. Uh, you knew what would happen if you rebelled against me. And now that I've returned you back to the land, you should know what would happen if you continue to walk in disobedience. Famine, pestilence, we've been through this again. So he's really returning back to his word again. And that, that because that's just the, uh, through the Old Testament, just the constant ringing bell is, God saying, you can trust me, take me at my word. If you don't, bad things happen. But listen to my word, listen to my word, and they don't. And that kind of uh, paves the way for some of the hardship that they they experienced. So that was the first oracle to God's people. And remember how they responded. So God comes along and says, get building. And how do the people respond at the end of chapter 1? They actually obey, yeah? They actually are, they repent, they say, you're right. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, given power, and they actually get to work, which is not something we can say for all the prophetic messages, but in this case, in Haggai's case, they respond favorably and they get to work and the Lord blesses them. So now we come into number two, three, and four of the oracles given to this post-exilic group as they try to rebuild life uh, after exile and in the ruins of Jerusalem. So they started building at the end of chapter 1. They started rebuilding God's temple. And we come to chapter 2. And again, we see a date opening this oracle on the 21st of the 7th month. So that would be October 17th of 520. The word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying... Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, this is a bit of a throwback to an earlier book of the Bible. And I want to go there just to read for us. So turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. I just want to read one section here of this book. So Ezra actually records... The returning of the people and the rebuilding of the temple. So really, Haggai is prophesying during the time of Ezra. And so there's a lot of parallel. Obviously, you can see how one fits into the other. But in Ezra chapter 3, we see actually this scene that is happening in Haggai chapter 2 where the people are rebuilding, but God needs to encourage them. And that's really the admonition from this second oracle is take courage. The first one is get building. This one is take courage now. We'd say, why do they need courage? All they're doing is putting brick on top of brick. You know, what do they need courage to do there? But we'll see as we go to Ezra chapter 3. So they start building, and then Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. Now keep in mind this scene. They've come back from... Babylon, where they had no temple. There's a sense in which they've been starved for this moment. Finally, the Levites and the priests get all dressed up in their priestly garb. They get their trumpets, like, we're going back to what we had before exile. It's an exciting moment, this, this climactic moment. But then verse 11. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites, and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout for joy from the sound of weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the shout was heard far away. So you see this almost tragic moment. This should be this climactic moment of rejoicing, but it's mingled with sorrow. Why would there be sorrow in this moment for some? Not for all, but for some.
1: Because
0: difference of the temple that Solomon built. It was Exactly. just a Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and it says specifically some of the older saints, right? They're there and everyone's rejoicing. Finally, we get this temple back. But some of the old ones who had seen Solomon's temple which was a sight to behold, they see just a foundation of this one, and they know right away, this is going to be pathetic in comparison. And they're grieved. Maybe that moment they think back to the sin that brought them into exile, that brought this destruction, all of that comes swelling back, and they can't help but be grieved by this. So back in Haggai, God says, take courage. Take courage. Um, and he says, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And some of them will have seen that. And how do you see it now? Does it seem like nothing in comparison? So, if we were going to summarize what they're feeling, there's a lot of discouragement, right? They've come back, they started rebuilding. The message came through Haggai in chapter one get building. They say, Yes, we'll do it. And now they lay the foundation. They say, Wow, this is it? This is what we have now? So, think about our lives for a moment and how we seek to serve the Lord and to uh, do work for Him, and we want to see fruit from our service. Are there any times where we might feel discouraged by the fruit that we see? That it doesn't match up maybe with what we envisioned when we started the work, and then we look at it maybe a few years later, a few months later, and we say, oh, this is it? I should be celebrating because I know the Lord is at work, but this foundation looks pathetic in comparison to the one down the street, or the one my friend told me that they had when they did a similar ministry, or whatever the case may be. What are some ways that we feel or be tempted to feel discouragement in serving the Lord? Yeah, for sure. And I love your optimism, Rose, hustling to the remedy. That is exactly what... But let's sit in the the despair for a moment. Are there times that we are discouraged? And it comes from comparison. I mean, that's what they're doing, right? They're comparing in their mind's eye what they remember to this. Oh, it's a dagger to the heart for some of them. What about other things that we do that we're called to do?
1: Yes? Well, it's just that my non-Christian
0: friends, some of them, are doing much better financially than I am. That's true. Yeah, I understand that as well. He's like... But Lord, I love you. And I serve you. Could you not show me show me some of that love as well? Yes. What else? Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to guess that's got to be mingled in there a little bit, right? It's just a a visceral reminder to them of what they lost and why they lost it. And now it's almost kind of this, maybe a a thought of will it ever get back to what it was or have we damaged it so much that we'll never get back there? I I don't know. We're speculating here, but I think they're they're educated guesses perhaps. Go ahead, Ken.
1: So...
2: What they built and delivered, is that the best that they could do
0: at that time? Yeah, good question. It's like the riddle with the mic, the best she's got. We, we don't really know, right? We just say that, we see that they, in chapter 1, they responded to God's admonition, got building, there's no indication that they're holding back at this point. It's just they lay the foundation and they, and, and remember, there's a lot of people that are celebrating here. The foundation's laid, there's maybe even the majority are saying, hallelujah, we got a temple again. It's, it's those who remember the past who are just saying, yeah, it's cute, but it's not what the Lord deserves, maybe, or it's not what we had in the past, and there's grief mingled in there. But wouldn't
2: the Lord be satisfied this
1: is the best that they could offer, this is the best that they could do, just as satisfied with that interaction as opposed to Solomon?
0: Yeah. So wouldn't the Lord be satisfied, coming, and we'll see that he is, and he actually encourages them in the rest of this oracle. He says, I'm with you. Just take courage. But at the moment, they're discouraged. I think of like when we had, um, um, some of you were around in 2020, um, just before the first set of lockdowns, Oak Ridge had really been growing. And there was a lot of young families coming to the church. And that's when we first started talking about we're out of space. We need to knock these walls down at the back of the sanctuary to leave space. And it was a really exciting time. And then COVID came and emptied the place out. And I remember there was a season, if you might recall, where we, could, we were allowed to have 10 people in, <laughs> into the building. And so we would get, you know, the people who lead on the platform, we just came and kind of live streamed a service. And I remember preaching in those times and looking out at six people. And I don't know, this text came to mind. Like, remember the former glory almost. And I don't want to say temple to this is a one in one correlation, but I remember, Lord, you are working so wonderfully, and now this is what's left. And it was kind of a, a gut punch at times. Like, I felt like the trajectory and the momentum was happening. It was for your glory, Lord. It's not like we were, I don't think, walking in abject sin, but now we've been taken down to the foundation, taken down to the rubble, basically. It was hard not to be discouraged in that moment. Um, but, but then I
1: think when being taken down to the rubble, you appreciate what is it is that God has done. And so maybe moving, yeah.
0: And here you go again, Rose. Showing you just can't hold in that maturity, can you? You keep going to the, you keep going to the, uh, how we should be thinking. I wasn't thinking that way all the time. I, I, I'll admit, it was a struggle for me at times. You know that I was just discouraged. That um, almost like, will we ever return back to? Or if you share the gospel with someone and you hear stories in the church of people, oh, I shared the gospel with someone last week and I led them to the Lord, it was wonderful. And then I share the gospel with someone and basically gets spit on. You're know, like. Where's the you're comparing again? You're like what the what did I do wrong? You know, and there's this comparison game. There can be discouragement. Yeah. And there ways that we're tempted to be discouraged. As we just plod along in the Christian faith, just try to be faithful. Okay. No? Anyone ever discouraged? Sorry? Expectations are a big one, right? Where sometimes we grow in expectations and then put them on God and it's not what God expected but all of a sudden they're attributed to God and then he doesn't come through and meet them and I almost want to blame God sometimes and all that kind of stuff and sometimes uh, my flesh gets mingled in with God, the expectations that get thrown on God. Um, anyone ever get discouraged with their own sanctification? Their own growth in holiness? Is that ever discouraged is it just me? Okay, good. Okay, it's just me. What's that? About like a
3: physical disability, some sort of thorn in the flesh that just prevents you from going
0: as far as you want to go. Sure, and there could be times because of the providence of God through our medical system, maybe you see improvement for, physically with that thorn in the flesh. Oh, Lord, I'm going to be able to serve you unhindered soon. And then there's this huge regression. And he's like, oh, it's just this deflating window of the sails experience. And when we think about those times that we experience that, and same with like, sanctification, I feel like I'm making strides against this besetting sin that just plagues me, and I'm, uh, the, by God's grace, I'm winning against it, it seems I'm killing it, and then something happens, and it spirals back to where I was two years ago, and you're just like, what on earth is happening? And when I think about all those times that it's tempted to be discouraged, I can relate to these people here, whether they're right or wrong, I don't know Whether they're what was in their mind when they look at that temple and the foundation, but the discouragement is relatable. You know, we were here, and now we're here. And some of it's, all of it's our fault they kind of this gut punch. Now, God is gracious as he always is. And just like in chapter 1, when they are sinning by ignoring him, he comes along and says, get building. Here he comes along when they're discouraged and deflated. He says, take courage. Okay? Like, like Rose was getting us to, take courage. That What you see is not what you get. There's more going on here than meets the eye. So let's keep reading. In Haggai chapter 2, I'm wondering if someone can read for us, starting in verse 4 down to verse 9, the end of this oracle. 4 to 9. have verse 9.
2: says the Lord of Hosts. And and in this place,
0: I will give peace, says the Lord of Hosts. Great, thanks. It's hard not to immediately recognize the repetition of Lord of Hosts, right? It's almost exhaustive. Lord of Hosts, Lord of Hosts. We get it, Lord of Hosts. We talked about this last week. What is the image that comes along with that name of the Lord? It is power, right? He's coming with a host of heaven's armies behind him. So when he says, take courage, says the Lord of Hosts, says the one who has all power. The goal is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Um, I will fill this pathetic shed that you're building with my glory. And they might be tempted to say, how? And he says, I'm the Lord of hosts. That's how. I can do whatever I want to do. So we think about they're discouraged. They say, oh, this is nothing like what it was. Our sin caused this. How does God come along and say, take courage? What tools does he give them that they can actually follow that directive and actually take courage and keep going? What does he give them? What's in his encouragement? Messiah? Oh, where? No, well, it's coming. It's oh, yes, absolutely. That's very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, amen. So this is this temple because
1: Jesus.
0: Wonderful. Good. Yeah, you're going a long ways ahead. That's excellent. Yes. That will fill the temple with a lot of glory, won't it? That's like the apex. That's like the perfect glory filled. Good. What a- Specifically, what? Yes. Mhm
2: of, of this temple
1: and it, and it does mention this temple not mm-hmm.
2: another uh, Mhm I think the it's basically reminding them that he fulfills his word. He's mm-hmm. always fulfilled his word. They know his word. Mm-hmm. They know that he's trying to come through. They should have known. Again, going back to the mm-hmm. covenant, they knew the results of what happened. Mm-hmm. They knew that that was what was. Yeah. Happening, and I think with the prophetic word, it was to burden that. Yeah, I'm still with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm. He does say that you heard yep. right. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, they not. yeah notice too that I am with you he said that before they started building they started building and he says it in their discouragement that he's with them he's always with them in spite of their frailty their humanness their uh, it, it's, it's his presence is promised and then they work and I don't want to stretch this too far but we need to understand when we talk about salvation by grace through faith his presence comes with us and then we get to work it's not we get to work to 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 coerce his presence, right? It's the other way around. Yeah, go ahead, Ken.
1: With that, uh, I'll be with you. There's a couple
2: others in verse 5 that says, I uh, have no fear. Mm-hmm. Then in verse 9, it, uh, <clears throat> it says, and I'll give peace.
0: Yeah. Yes. Those are pretty good promises as well, right? And there's a sense in which you notice that, and uh, Manny just pointed out this out, he is promising, lifting their eyes to the future, but it is, uh, to use a big word, eschatological. It is end times kind of future. When he talks about the heavens shaking and the earth shaking, you go to Joel, you go to a lot of other passages, those are very um, future-looking realities. Not that he won't fill that, that temple right before them with peace before then, but when he starts to te- mention the foundation shaking, we're talking about something that will is, is a long way off, something final, something final, when Messiah will come to his temple in perfection. It's exciting. That's interesting. My grandfather got
1: more he was a right. He said, you will be the desire of the nations. And that's the only thing that people saw. They will be the desire. They will be better than the
0: nations. And that's the only thing they ever saw. Israel. We the desire of the nations.
1: They will be the desire. And that's mm-hmm. the
0: only thing. That's you could talk about. My father's law. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. Very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, there is this, and you do see a little bit of it there with the, uh, um, many talked about t- t- the nations in verse uh, verse 7. I-, I can't help, maybe it's because it's fresh in my mind, but hearken back to the Abrahamic covenant as well, this idea of the nations are going to be blessed through you, this idea of Israel didn't exist just for itself, although by the time Jesus came along, they had kind of forgotten that, right? They kind of were this insular reality, but they always existed to bless, to bless the nations, that God would bless the nations through them, um, Just like everyone else, they get selfish at times. I can relate to that also, but that is their, their purpose. So again, this is, take courage. This shed that you're building now, it may be nothing compared to what was. And that's discouraging. But God says, the Lord of hosts says, man, what's coming will make Solomon's temple look like a toy box. It will be nothing compared to what is coming. I'm going to fill it with my glory in a special way. And so, I mean, lift your chins, my people. Like, there is something coming that is far better than you can even imagine. That's pretty, uh, pretty encouraging for these discouraged people. What a gracious God. Comes along and says, straighten your back. Something is coming that's better. Something is coming that's better. And isn't it just wonderful that God is not limited by our limitations? Let's assume for a moment that when they're rebuilding this temple... They've come back to the ruins of Jerusalem. They've come back to the ruins, the, the smoking chaff in the fields, and all they can muster is this measly temple. Maybe that's all they can do. They go and get the wood from Lebanon. They build this thing, and they're just like, oh, that's all we can do. And God says, it's no matter. I don't, that doesn't limit me at all. Remember, the gold is mine. Everything in the world is mine. I will bring it here, and I will make this wonderful. Uh, and so God is just not limited by us and what we can offer. Our job is to do what we can be faithful with what he calls us to do, give what we can do, and allow the Lord to fill it with his glory and use it. That's so liberating, isn't it? Go ahead, Rose. Because we look at the external. Oh, yeah. So when he says, when he saying Lord of things, it's like, okay, this is the life.
1: This is what we're supposed
0: to be looking at. Yeah, for sure. So the other half to the first question I asked about us being discouraged in ministry and what we're called to do, ways that we can be discouraged, deflated... What are some tools that God gives us to fight against that potential discouragement? Things that He gives us so that when we are discouraged in this life, trying to serve Him faithfully, and we run into those walls, we run into our limitations, God says, "Straighten your back, lift your eyes up." These things are still true. Take courage, He says to us as well. What are those things? Encouragement. Encouragement in the Word, prayer. prayer. Good. What else? church fellowship. Isn't that wonderful? Like, I can get out, go out there in the world and get beat up all week and failed attempts at evangelism (laughs) and and get called an archaic caveman and all these things for believing what I do. I can always retreat back to the body and find encouragement, find um, into the ranks and find fellowship with the other soldiers. There's something building up and encouraging. I can lick my wounds in here, so to speak. I mean, That's very helpful when you've been out getting beat up, right? And as our culture progresses beyond Christianity and sees it as an enemy, not just an alternative truth, an enemy to truth, that's going to be increasingly helpful to retreat back here and to get uh, reinforcement and healing and encouragement. Um, We need it. I need it. But it says right there in 9, I will grant you peace. Anyone know what the word for peace is in Hebrew? Shalom. Anyone ever heard that before? What does shalom mean? Peace is a very limited word in our understanding. We're, you know, it just means, for us it kind of means, well, there's no conflict. So we have peace. <laughs> we have peace in this room because there's, there's no fighting so far. Right? What is, anyone know what shalom means? It, it means a whole lot more than that.
3: Wholeness,
0: Wholeness right? It, it's things that they're supposed to be. We haven't had shalom since Genesis 2. Because peace is coming, like true peace. Why? Because the Prince of Peace is coming. He's the only one that can bring true everlasting peace. This peace that everything is put back the way it's supposed to be and will be forevermore. God's people, in their discouragement, in this pathetic temple with enemies all around them, they could use some peace at that moment. We could use a promise of shalom, of wholeness. What else does God promise us to quench our discouragement at times? in what way does god comfort us in our discouragement yeah. he come
3: to him with our discouragement, he grants us a uh, comfort hmm. such that we can then go out and comfort others
0: yeah. with the same comfort we yeah. Gave us. yeah yeah we're also given the comforter right that's a pretty good help as also right the, <laughs> the holy spirit that helps us no your point is valid like we comfort from our experiences but also the holy spirit helps us as he comforts us Um, think about a specific example let's talk about sanctification because I saw at least two nods when I said I I admitted that sometimes sanctification seems like a uh, one step forward, two steps backward how does God comfort me in my failings and discouragement in my pursuit of holiness what does he come along and say I know that you're discouraged uh, but straighten your back here are some things I'm encouraging you with as far as your pursuit of holiness Do do any come to mind, Sue? Verses from scripture, for sure. Um, I put you on the spot there.
1: That's
3: okay. Behold, I am with you always.
0: Excellent. Even to the end of the age. Yeah.
3: There's more
1: to that verse. Mm -hmm. I will not... The next word, I don't remember.
0: Leave you or forsake you. Excellent. That's good, even in my valley of the shadow of death, when sanctification seems a fleeting memory, he's still with me. I feel like I've tried to chase him off, and he just, he won't. And not because I do anything to attract him, because he has made a promise, and he's good to his word. That's it. Sorry? You're welcome. You're always welcome. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, hard to know.
2: Yeah, I just kind of curious this like we know
0: what happened to Job. Yeah. I know it's the I was just wondering if, if good, if And if they didn't know about Job, which I if I was a betting person and I'm not, but if I was, I would say they probably did. But even if they didn't, they certainly knew of their own history. Yeah. And they knew of Abraham. And they knew of Jacob. And they knew of all these other things. They knew of God's faithfulness in their own history. If Israel was good at anything, it was preserving their history and rehearsing their history right, by God's command. And so, for this very reason, yeah. what well, the promise? You know, you think of Romans eight: those I justify, da, 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 I will glorify. And there's some days I'm like, really, you're going to glorify this? Um, and he says, No, I, I will, I will. Or First Corinthians fifteen: resurrection. Like, if you feel like, you, I think you brought up, uh, Tim, the, the health struggle, the thorn in the flesh, and you're just battling, Lord, I could serve you so much better if I wasn't hindered by this, this tent. And uh, while well, that may be true, and there may be days I'm discouraged because of physical limitations, God says there's coming a day when that body will be made new, and there will be no limitations. Uh, there will be resurrection coming. Those are things that lift your eyes to the horizon.
3: What about uh, Hebrews?
0: For sure. Even in my greatest weakness, I can call out to the great high priest. And sometimes the Holy Spirit groans and, and prays for me in my weakness. And I mean, sometimes they're just talking on my behalf, it seems like, right? A lot of the time. Go ahead, Brett. The
3: first Peter 5, I says, Remember uh, to cast your, your anxieties on him because mm-hmm. he cares for you. Yeah. yeah. Peter writes, he's a shepherd. Really. Yeah. He's very shepherdly.
0: Very much. Was there ever times, do you think, in the Psalms when David seems discouraged or Asaph seems discouraged? <clears throat> ever? <laughs> <laughs> that guy seems like it was a roller coaster at times. And there's times that he's very honest and calls out, God, where are you? I'm discouraged. And then at the end of the psalm, he always comes back, but you're faithful. I, he always comes back to settle on truths that he knows. That's a model for us. You know, we may become discouraged in this life. In fact, we will because we're fallen. The world's fallen. We are finite. We are incapable. But our God is the Lord of heaven's armies. He is the Lord of hosts. And we come back to him and just say, You're faithful. I'm discouraged. I don't think that's a sin necessarily. But I'm going to throw myself on your mercy and say, I need you to lift up my eyes again. That's what he was doing here. So
1: that's why right. Second Corinthians, um in chapter 1, it says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in every trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. Yeah. I just
1: said the whole verse to myself, and now <laughs> I
0: can't remember. The, the author and perfecter of our faith? Uh, well, it's the Oh, okay. Song. Oh, I see. In his wonderful face. Wow. And the cares of this world will grow strangely dim. In the the- light of his glory and- Grace, yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right, let's go to number three. Number three, starting in verse 10. Someone read for us 10 through 14.
3: On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garments, with the ed- and with the edge he touches bread, or stew, wine, or oil, any food. Will it become holy Then the priests answered and said, No. But, and Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there, is unclean.
0: All right. So here's a great illustration here, a powerful illustration Hagar uses. Uh, the point of which is what? What's he trying to communicate to God's people? So this is a new, he's told them, get building, take courage. And now this is a new segment, a new message. And what's this illustration pointing them to? What truth? If you're going to summarize it. You need to come to him. Yeah, God needs cleanliness, right? God, because God is pure. He needs purity to be his presence. What else? This illustration.
3: Don't do the work thinking that that's what makes you holy, that God makes you holy.
0: Yeah. It's this idea of you have something dead, which is unclean ceremonially. You touch it. You're clean, does that, which, which way does the cleanliness transfer? You know, it, it only goes one direction, right? You can't shoot out cleanliness on something that's unclean. It always goes the opposite direction. Uncleanness always transfers to clean. There's one exception when Jesus came on the scene, right? That's one of the many mirac- amazing things about Jesus. A leper comes up, and a leper is unclean, 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 and Jesus comes up and touches him. Like, you can't touch a leper because, like this, uncleanness transfers but with Jesus, that wasn't the case. Jesus was so clean he could transfer his cleanliness the other day. But we can't. We're not Jesus. Surprise, surprise, right? And so we always receive uncleanliness. Now, I don't know all that was going on here. We don't know everything. But could it be that when God's people came back to the land, they stepped foot back on the promised land and like cleanliness. Like it's this clean promised land, and they're almost sucking back up the purity and then swaggering around saying, now we're clean because we're back in our land. Maybe that was part of it. But they're thinking that this cleanliness can be transferred rather than what God is saying is here, no, no, you're unclean people, and everything you touch is turning unclean. Everything you offer me is turning unclean. Maybe it was that they were putting these bricks in the temple. So they have these bricks that are like, this is part of the, this is part of the Holy of Holies. I'm hanging this thing now. This is, I'm touching things that are going to be set aside for God's use. I'm getting some cleanliness. It's wafting of cleanliness, of purity. God's like, no, no, you defile everything you touch because you are defiled. It only goes one direction. So you think about us. What are some ways that we sometimes think that we can, we can clean things up or we can inherit cleanliness apart from Christ? Does that ever happen today? Where we think that we can, we, this holiness versus uncleanness, purity versus impurity, how does that happen today? The same battle that we fight as they were fighting then. Sorry, good Good works. We think that we're kind of stacking up um, acceptability before God with the, all the things that we do, right?
3: Uh, always equating success with, with uh, holiness or uh, divine accomplishment.
0: Okay, seeing as almost what you say, Brett, like the, the success is evidence that it is, cl- is yeah. clean, right? Yeah, good. We, we have a habit of sanctifying things that are not sanctifiable because we do it in the name of the Lord sometimes, right? Or, or not even sometimes. It's a good thing that we're doing, and so it makes us good. I mean, that is the MO of our world, right? If we do enough good things, that makes us good people. Or even worse, today in our day and age, is if I publicly am seen saying good things that makes me a good person. I don't even have to actually do them behind the scenes. I just have to make it believe that I believe these things, and I'm all of a sudden a good person. This is the same thing. We're playing with purity, You know, where we're trying to do things that bring purity or acceptability to us. And as Christians, we of all people should recoil at that. How are we made clean? Only one way, right? It's the detergent of the blood of Christ that washes us clean. There is nothing we do that merits any sort of, in fact, as Jeremiah says, what are our good works? Filthy rags. The best thing I can muster. God says, oh, man, that just stinks. Get that out of here. That is the worst thing I've ever smelled. Like, but I meant so much. I meant well. You know, I wanted to do this so well for you, Lord. And God just says, it stinks. That's how sinful you are, Josiah. That even the best thing you can muster, compared to my holiness, is just filthy. The only thing that we can do, and and now fast-forwarding to this side of the cross, is we throw ourselves in Jesus. We're made pure in him as we're in Christ. And then from that, we go out and we do good works in his name. And the Lord uses those things. But we never want to get the cart before the horse, as many people do, and think that we can earn our way by doing good things and making ourselves pure. I'm using pure kind of as a synonym, as acceptable before God, because that's what he demands, holy, right? We can't do that. And that's the world we live in, people thinking that they can outweigh their good and their bad by doing or appearing to do good things and being acceptable. And Israel, surprise, surprise, was struggling with that as well. well let's finish this, uh, this um Oracle here, verse 15 through to 19. Some read for us. 15 to 19.
3: Now then, consider from this day onward, for stone was placed upon stone in the temple of Yahweh, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me. The Lord. Consider that from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day, I will bless you.
0: Good. So essentially what he's saying is very similar to the first oracle. He's saying, consider, like, look around, has it been successful so far? No. You go to get 50 measures, there's less than half of that. And you're saying, why? Why are we not being successful? Because you're not walking in faithfulness to the covenant I made with you. You're not understanding holiness and purity. But then, again, God's grace on display He says, but from this day forward. Even before they start obeying, even before he's just corrected them, and he's just going to assume that they're going to start obeying, from this day forward, I'm going to start to bless you again. I'm going to start to uh, fill the barn. I'm going to start to um, have these trees bear fruit. I will bless you, he says specifically. Go ahead, Sue. Um, can we
1: digress? just
0: a bit? Of course. That's what this class is for. Digression. <laughs>
1: okay. I just had a thought
3: um, about Billy Graham. All his works, his evangelism, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera, he says
1: filthy rats. He did so much. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, I can accept that, but that was his life.
0: Yeah. So. In Christ, we're not producing filthy rags, if it's in the name of Christ. If it's, and I want to be careful. That it's more your works, apart from me, your works trying to do basically what Israel's trying to do here are filthy. On your own, you can produce nothing but something disgusting. But someone who takes the gospel and tries to share the gospel with someone, not only does the Lord always honor his word, always. always he has no obligation to honor me as a preacher, no obligation to honor you as an evangelist, but he will always honor his word. And so if Billy Graham, for example, like you bring up, stands up and opens his word, um, the Lord will honor it. That's why I think we see, you know, in the past number of years, we've had some very famous people fall from grace in some very spectacular ways. Things were unveiled about their life. It was just tragic. And I think rightly so, we start wondering about the works that they produced during their life. But I know a lot of people, for example, Ravi Zacharias was catastrophic. Uh, the church I served at before Oak Ridge, there was a huge following of it. They loved Ravi Zacharias. and I wasn't there when all this went down, but I'm sure it broke a lot of hearts. Does that negate all of the fruit that came from his ministry? Yeah. Or did the Lord honor his word when it was rightly handled and will continue to do that in spite of the messenger? That's like, just like this temple, this pathetic temple, this pathetic temple, the Lord will honor his word going through it. It's when we try to conjure up good works by, by ourselves without the Lord. It's, even your best is, is nothing. Go ahead, Joe. Actually,
1: if you look at Solomon's temple, God honored
0: it. Yeah. Different. That's a great example. Solomon, this, this wonderful temple that they're actually harkening back to here, right? Solomon didn't end so hot. You know, he did, not, he did not end that well. He was led far astray. And yet the Lord honors his covenant. He honors his word. He's not obligated himself to me in that same way. So when we go out and we use God's word to bring people into the knowledge of truth, the Lord honors that. And those aren't filthy. But it's just anything I try to do by myself, as well-meaning as it is. Nothing. I didn't mean to throw Billy Graham under the bus. Also,
1: yeah, but also Jesus said, One day they will come. And say, Lord, Lord,
0: I Yeah, yeah. That's why we have to watch lives. We have to watch and, and keep a finger like the Bereans in the Word. Some people will say things that sound pretty biblical, but sometimes under further inspect, in, investigation, they're not quite as biblical as they sound.
1: they're making this person a God and then of course they're forgetting that they're human and yeah. they make
0: mistakes. Yeah, it can be. I, I think it's also just legit. Like I think that you know, when people who seem to have served the Lord and the Lord has used in my life to bless me, they fall. I think it's very understandable to be punched in the gut with that. I, I think, just think there's a deflation that comes a disappointment like here in the text. Um, even if I don't idolize that person. It's worse if I do. But even if I don't, there's just something ugh. Another one? Another seemingly faithful man or woman of God has fallen? You're just, Lord, how long? So I think there's a godly discouragement that comes with godly discontentedness that comes with the frailty of this life and the imperfection of his servants. Yeah. All right, let's finish this book. The last oracle. Starting in verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the, of the month. So this is the same day as number three, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What's a signet ring? Anyone know? The seal. Yeah, yeah. Identification of, in this case, royalty, right? And Zerubbabel here is of the line of who? Anyone know? Of the line of David. So really, this is, in this last oracle, is another hope-giving oracle. Look to the future. I have not abandoned my covenant with David either. There's a time coming when, through you, Zerubbabel, this, this line is contained. It is intact, and I will raise up with your signet ring. You are of my royal lineage of David, and I will still see someone on the throne. And they're looking around this tiny temple, this pathetic kingdom that's left, and God says, don't worry, I have not forgot my word. I have not forgot my covenant. It's coming. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about for a few minutes. So this really, and the second oracle, points them to the future, right? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth this is eschatology type of language. What is the, some of the intended godly purposes of looking to the end times for our life today? Sometimes it can be twisted to, to be used in some excitable kind of ways, uh, sensationalizing type of ways. But what does God, when God points us to the future, to the end of all things, like He does here, I'm going to be faithful to the end. David's line is contained. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. What is that supposed to do in us? Just like it was supposed to do to them, when we look to the last things, hope. hope. Okay, and how does that? I totally agree. So it gives us hope. This this anticipation for a future reality. What does that do for me now, though?
1: Commit. Sorry. Want to
0: commit? Want to commit? To the Lord. Okay. To Okay, good. So knowing that it will be okay helps me commit now. How so? By surrendering your life to to say, you know,
1: use me or I
0: surrender. Yeah? So I read uh, quite a famous commentator this week in the book of Revelation, he was writing, and he was uh, mocking someone like me who's called, I would call myself a futurist. So you look at the book of Revelation, I think a lot of it is chapter 4 on is coming. And this guy writing is what's called a preterist. So he believes everything in Revelation happened by AD 70. And And he was mocking a futurist view, someone that thinks that looks to the head. He said, these futurists, they have their heads so far in the future that they are no good in discipleship today. They ignore discipleship today. And I said, okay, um, let me think about that. How is it then, because I would disagree, but how do I think my view of the future increases my view of discipleship today? Like you are saying, it actually increases my commitment to the Lord. How are those two connected, if at all? Because the Lord doesn't want all, anyone to perish. And so we are to make disciples. Today. Okay, because of what is to come? Okay.
3: Second is, if you are a Christian, we have to reach the world while we have time, because mm-hmm. there is a time coming when the end will come, and yeah. no one, whoever is saved is at
0: the Yeah, so there's an urgency? An urgency. Yeah. What else? Go, Tara. I think to run the, run the, the race well, yeah so well. Yes. And, you know, being influenced by his people <clears throat> and and sort of, mm-hmm. the people who are inviting them, so you come find the end, what's going to what's happen
1: in the end. You know,
0: yes. Yeah, you run well in light of what is to come. Good.
3: It, uh, it encourages you to uh, to get busy and stay that way because the Lord will be coming like a thief in the night. Yeah. Because we do not know when our time will come to an end. Yeah. So we just prepare for
0: Yeah. I just to God promised a beta. Is this since I think 70 beta? I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say the same thing. I was like, is this the kingdom? Really? Oh, my goodness. You watch the news. You say, this is, this is it? Oh, come on, Lord. That doesn't seem consistent with his character. I'm the Lord of hosts. And you look out the window and you say, okay, well then, something befitting the Lord of hosts is coming. And we know that uh, from Scripture. You know, this idea that head in the clouds removes us from the now is so, uh, so far removed from reality. It's not even funny. How can we endure this if we are not hyper-aware of what is to come. And not some ethereal, vague, well, I think I'm going to be floating with the Lord. I'm sure it will all end okay. That's true. But the more crystallized our view of the future becomes, the more stalwart we can be now. Because I know what's coming. I know when I shut my eyes for the last time in this world where I will open them and where I will be for eternity. I know what is coming. That's why Paul can say, what can you do to me? You know, send me home or leave me here to labor for him. It doesn't matter. Because he knew he had a I mean, some guy I knew went up to the third heaven. You know, who was that? When he says, like, some guy I know, I don't know whether in the body or out of the body. He knew. Paul knew what was to come, and that gave him a rock-solid confidence. When we take any sort of clarity off of the future, we remove conviction in the present. Uh, That's my belief. The more clear we are on what is to come, the more conviction we can have now, and the more invested we can be in doing the painstaking work of self-sacrificial discipleship and suffering for the Lord. Because I know what's coming. I know the are rewards that await. I know all of that. And so it can, be, it can fuel us. Uh, we want to be rooted in the future. Not the least of which reasons is that God continually points his people to the future. He says, take me at my word. See what will happen. You know, I said once upon a time, blessed are you, Bethlehem, riding on a donkey. A virgin will give birth. Guess what happened in all of those? Exactly as I said. So when I say I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the glory will fill this temple and it will be a new heavens and new earth and he will sit on the throne forever, what do you think is going to happen? He's given us a template for how to understand his prophecies for the future. Um, And the more we lean on those, as unbelievable as they may be to our fallen minds, and some of it you read and you're like, how is that going to happen? Our job is not to fully necessarily grapple and understand every little bit. Our job is to lean on him and trust him uh, that what he said will come to pass and that will give us hope in the present. And here... They're looking at a shadow of what was and he says, look up to the future. Peace is coming, a glorious temple and that kingdom is coming and it will reign forever. It's a beautiful thing. We want to use eschatology, the doctrine of last things as it should be used. We dare not ignore it because it's divisive or spooky or anything like that. We need to lean into it because it gives us hope now. Any final thoughts on the book of Haggai? little book, but pretty practical. There's some, some stuff for us today even though it was written a long time ago.
3: no sees everything. That's great. When oh, right. you think this is less, no, 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 it's great in my, my opinion. Yeah. Who, who are we trying to please, man or God? Yeah. So that's just, that's,
0: that's great. Good. A good word. All right. Well, uh, let's go worship together. Tim, would you mind closing us in prayer? We'll do that.